0: Well, it's my privilege this morning to invite you to open your bibles to the book of hebrews once again but due to my trip to nepal a couple of two months ago maybe and due to the move into this building it's been uh, more than 3 months since we've been in the book of hebrews we left off at the, la- the end of chapter 10 and so this morning we pick our exposition up in hebrews chapter 11 It is one of those most loved portions of Scripture. Whenever a Scripture has a name given to it, you know it's loved and appreciated. And uh, Hebrews 11 has been called the faith chapter, or I prefer the hall of faith. Being a sports fan myself, kind of getting the allusion there to the hall of fame, the hall of faith as we have heroes of the faith. Entire chapter of the Bible devoted to the topic of faith. More than 26 times the word faith occurs. It is the recurring theme throughout the chapter, again and again and again and again. Now, in many ways, Hebrews chapter eleven is a treatise upon faith, but I appreciate how the writer, the book of Hebrews, does it. Um, it's not merely that he just speaks about faith from an abstract principle and show and, and talks about faith; rather, he shows us what faith is like. Therefore, putting shoe leather to our faith, highlighting for us a dozen. Individuals whose lives recorded in the Old Testament. And then on top of that, if you look in verse 32 and following, some more he just mentions by name. And he mentions many, many deeds of what they did by faith in verses 33, 34, 35, 36, 37, and 38. And these, these men are a man of whom the world was not worthy because they walked in an otherworldly sort of way. And so I've been thinking about faith for quite some time, anticipating the way that the writer... The Hebrews brings out faith. I'm, I'm very thankful for the way he does it because there's something stirring about seeing faith in action, is there not? There's something stirring about seeing someone act upon their faith and living in such a way that, uh, that pleases the Lord. It takes, takes faith out of the classroom, if you will, and puts it into real life where we all live. And, and I feel like in Hebrews 11, that's a good way to approach things because faith is a little bit like beauty. Uh, you can see beauty and recognize beauty and identify beauty where it is, but it's kind of difficult to define it. If you really sit down to think about what is it that makes something beautiful? It's kind of, kind of difficult to describe. It can't be done. Theologians down through the history have done an excellent job articulating exactly what faith is with its many nuances. But that's, that's not what Hebrews chapter 11 is. Hebrews chapter 11, we see a bit of a description about faith that comes in verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then we have 39 verses giving examples and models of what faith is and what it looks like. You got one giving a a definition, description, if you will, and then 39 showing it flesh out. I love the balance or imbalance there because that's what we need when it comes to faith. We need models, we need examples. Rather than we need abstract ideas about what faith is, and, and I tell you, there's so much here in Hebrews chapter 11, there's so much to see, so many stories to tell, so many people to think about that I believe we'll be in this chapter for months. So we just walk through this passage together. And uh, this morning I'm going to be in verses one and two. Next week, I'm going to be in verse three alone, the next week after that, probably verse four and five, maybe six the next week after that. We'll spend a week on Noah. we spend a week on Abraham. We're going to go slow here, okay? We're, we're going to slow down and just take each of these people, each of these um, examples and really contemplate, think about faith. And I think about what a, what a good thing it would be for us for a couple of reasons. One is as we start the new year with faith. I mean, faith is what, what is we need. When God calls us to come to Him, first thing He tells us not to love Him and not to obey Him or serve Him. The first thing that God calls us to do is to believe in Him. And in fact, in many ways, that's the only thing that God calls us to do is to believe in Him. And then everything else flows out of there. Our love for Him, our service for Him, our obedience to Him all flow from, from our faith. And our, our eternal destiny is also based upon our faith. Whoever believes in Him will not perish, but of everlasting life. Believing in Jesus gives us everlasting life. Life eternal. It's by believing in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that you have life in His name. And Jesus Himself said this, He who believes is not judged. Amen. Right? We long for the day and we stand before the judge and don't get judged. Why? Because we're hidden in the righteousness of Christ and God sees us as righteous in Him. But Jesus continued. He says, He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he's not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God, John 3.18. So our eternal destiny is, is based upon our faith, dependent upon our faith. It's good for us we think about this new year. What will we live? What will, what, what will guide us? What will be the principles? I should encourage us to think about the principles of living by faith. I, I challenge those who stayed here through midnight, um, New Year's Eve, as we prayed in the new year, we're Praying, He's actually singing a song while the, the New Year struck. From 2 Timothy 4, where Paul says, I'm already being poured out to drink offering. The time my departure has come. He says, but I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. He says, I have kept the faith. And, and Paul says, I think by the end of his life, the thing he looks back on that, that encouraged him mostly is that he fought the good fight of faith. That he finished his course. And he looks back he says, you know, I've kept the faith. I've been one to believe, and I've believed on through my whole life. And see, that is what faith is. Faith isn't a mere one-time act. Faith is something we ought to manifest on a daily basis of our lives. God's call upon our lives is to believe in Him and trust in Him every moment of the day. Every day of the year. Every week of the year. Every month. Throughout our whole lives. And over the next few months, we're going to see examples of those who are trusted in God. And we'll be called to a similar trust in God. My message this morning is called entitled, The Call to Faith. And in great measure, this is what Hebrews is about. It is a call to faith. It's telling the people in the first century to believe, to continue in faith until the end. And, and since we've been out of Hebrews for so long, for three weeks, what I want to do this morning is send, spend a major portion of our time just even reviewing as so we think about uh, everything coming before chapter 11, it's going to be a, a good review for us because in many ways, Hebrews chapter 11 is a pinnacle. It's a climax. It, it's what everything has been crescendoing towards is this whole idea of faith and believing and trusting in Jesus. So this morning, I want to do an overview. And so my first point is going to be really Hebrews 1-10. Hebrews through 10, Kind of an overview of that. Then we're going to settle down and look at verse 1 for a little bit. Description. And then we'll hit 2 and then survey Hebrews chapter 11. So today's kind of like an an overview message, if you will, before we get into the details of it next week. As we go to Hebrews chapter 11, it's going to spill into chapter 12. will lead us nicely into the Lord's Supper as we think about Jesus. That's my plan. Review the book of Hebrews. Look at Hebrews 1, 11 verse 1, and then chapter 11. My first point is this, the need for faith. The need for faith comes in chapters 1 through 11. That They really build the case. Each of us need to believe in Jesus. The book of Hebrews is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ, right? You, you all know what, how I've titled the book of Hebrews. What is it? What's the theme of Hebrews again? Jesus is better, so, so press on. Jesus is better, so press on. And the whole book is about how Jesus is better. From the beginning to the end, that's what it's about. We see Jesus being presented as better than any Old Testament reality there is. Whether it's the Scriptures, whether it's angels, or, or Moses, or Joshua, the rest He gives, or Aaron, or Melchizedek, or Abraham, or the covenant, the sacrifice. Everything in Jesus is better. And the conclusion is this, is that really we need to believe in Jesus because He's better. And, and the way that belief flushes itself out is by pressing on, enduring until the end. In the book of Hebrews... Here is really far more than just this um, treatise upon who Jesus is. Really setting up Jesus as as our best hope. No, our our only hope is to trust in Jesus and His righteousness. But it's far more than merely theological treatise. It's got a practical element to to it as well because there's a danger of people in the first century. They were in danger of turning back on Jesus. And he's writing to warn them of the danger that they have. See, when the book was originally written, it was written to Jewish people. That's the name. Hebrews. Saturated with Old Testament Scripture because it's written to those who knew the Scriptures really well. And, And these people, Jewish people to whom it was written, had heard about Jesus, had become interested in Jesus, had come to the church had experienced Jesus in some measure by experiencing the people of His church and hearing the Word and hearing about Jesus and who He was. But over the weeks and months and years, they began to have their, their doubts. And some of these people may never have left their Jewish roots. Maybe they're just kind of dabbling, like some people do. They just kind of dabble here, go to one church, go to another church, go to another church. Or, or maybe they were going to a church and still going to the temple. It very well could have been that if they were fully engaged in all the rituals and sacrifice of the temple. They never believed in Jesus at all, but many were kind of curious. But they were, were falling away back to the Judaism. Others may have experienced doubts when they remember the way that things used to be. The priests and the sacrifices and the smells. You know, uh, there's such a thing in Christianity, I don't know if the thing's not, not the right word, but Christianity is very non-substantial. We believe in Jesus. Our leader is gone. He's dead and risen from the dead. We don't have any icons. We don't have any that we look to. We don't have any special things per se. As opposed to like the Old Testament they had the, the tabernacle they had Jerusalem which was the place and they had the feasts, and they had the festivals and and everything was all together and Christianity is so different and there may have been some people who had some sentimental t- attraction to the ways of the Old Covenant and were then falling away from Jesus because they liked those things. Or, or maybe some others were falling away because of conversations they had with friends and relatives who didn't believe in Jesus at all. And how easy it would have been for them to talk about just the outward circumstances. You're going just to this building? Well, what are you doing there? Well, we got the temple. Why don't you go to a temple? You go, you're meeting in houses? All you have is a Scripture. But look, we've got priests. We have rituals. We have sacrifices. You can touch the priest. You can talk to the priest. Your priest is gone. Jesus. And he says he's coming back. He's not coming back. And so all these doubts may be filled in their mind and they were in danger of being tempted away. And thus the reason in the book of Hebrews for the warning sections, there are five of them. This way the writer of the Hebrews being a bit like a, a salesman, I really believe. like A, a salesman will, will show you the, the, the benefits of his product so, the greatness of the product will show you how you have a need for the product. We'll show you what will happen if you don't have this product. You're not going to be safe. It's going to end up costing you money in the long run. You're going to run out of money, perhaps in the future. All these things are true of the book of Hebrews. Jesus Christ is put on display, demonstrated to be the greatest. And then the writer shows you why you need to believe in Him. It's because He's your only hope. And then He shows what will happen if you don't believe. Your life's in danger. You'll face the fierce wrath of God. You'll not escape and the judgment that's coming upon you is merciless. So you need Jesus. And that way he's like a, a salesman. And I don't believe any of you want the judgments that's coming Hebrews in your life. So the call then is to believe in Jesus and so be saved. It's the only way you'll escape the judgment of God is to believe in Christ. It's the only way. So I want to Survey the book of Hebrews. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 1. The book begins with a, a statement about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. First, he talks about the Old Covenant. He says, God, after He spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions, in many ways. Talking about the Old Testament. That God wrote many different, different ways. Revealed Himself to different prophets. Different ways different people but in these last days it says in verse 2 he has spoken to us in his son the manner of revelation is a lot different between the old covenant and the new covenant in the old covenant it was God speaking to prophets or God speaking to the fathers and then them speaking to other people it, but in these last days God spoke to us in his son it's a little bit like the difference between a phone call and a personal visit you have a phone call what do you do you, you push a few numbers and you call someone on the line and you can talk to them. It's nice. It's personal. But you can't see the expression on your face. It costs really very little. Just a little bit of time pushing. But if someone comes and visits you personally, it costs a little bit more. You see them there in your presence. You can, you can touch them. You can see their facial expression, their mannerisms. You can shake their hands. Furthermore, they made an effort to meet with you. And that's what God has done. That's what Christmas is all about. Jesus Christ, God incarnate, came in the flesh to be among us to reveal God to us. In fact, it says in John 1:18, that Jesus Christ has explained God to us, because he himself being God himself, His revelation is better. It's better than anything in the Old Testament. And then he starts right out of the gates, lifting up the greatness of Jesus. Here are seven attributes of Jesus. He was appointed heir of all things. Second half of verse 2. Through whom also He made the world. He was a creator. Who is by being the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and God sustains. He upholds all things by the word of His power. And two, He made purification of sins. He sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. Here is Jesus, right, right right, here, lifted high, lifted for all to see. Jesus, the great Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer of the world. And the call, though it's not explicitly mentioned here, is to believe in Him and to trust Him. We see He's better than the Old Testament revelation. We see He's also, verse 4, better than the angels. And become as much better than the angels. He has a better name than them. According to verse five, he's called Son. He's not called an angel. He is to be worshipped. All the angels are called to worship. Jesus Christ is called to be worshipped. He is royalty. He's king. According to verse eight, he is the eternal Creator. Verses ten through twelve, he is the sovereign one. Unlike the angels who serve, here is Jesus. He's much better than the angels. He's distinct from the angels. And then we get our first warning section here, chapter two, verses one through four. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so we're not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve? I'm sorry. This reason must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, so we're not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression received a just penalty... How should we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There's no escape if you miss Jesus. That's what it says. There's no escape. Because he is so, so high and lofty, he's mightier than the angels. What chapter 2, verse 5 through the end of the chapter speaks about, just how, how much greater he was. Yes, he became for a little while lower than the angels, as Psalm 8 says, but after that he was exalted high above all. It's far better than the angels. Chapter 3 continues the theme of the greatness of Jesus. He's better than Moses. Verse 3, He has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses by just as much as the builder of the house is more honor than the house. It's the one who builds has more honor than the house itself. And so, likewise, Jesus Christ being the builder, being the maker, has more honor than Moses. And for the Jewish people, Moses was, was everything. You can read John chapter 5 and, and how the people say, We follow Moses! But something greater than Moses is here, that was Jesus. Then came another warning. Chapter 3, verse 7 and following. The, the Old Testament people who followed Moses had hard hearts. And so the writer here says, well, if you're going to follow Jesus, don't have a hard heart in the process. It says here, verse 8, do not harden your hearts as when they provoked it's in sin the day of trial in the wilderness. Take care, verse 12, Brethren, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. says, so don't harden your heart against Jesus and His claims. And this is call of Hebrews. It's a, it's a serious call to have a soft heart towards Jesus and who He is. He's better than Moses. If they had a hard heart towards Moses, don't have a hard heart towards Jesus because He's much better. And then, continuing the theme about Moses, after Moses came Joshua and Joshua with the rest that He gave to the people... He gave them a measure of rest. But the rest that Jesus provides is better. You can see this in verse 9. Well, verse 8. If Joshua had given them rest, he would have not have spoken of him the day after that. Joshua did give them rest, but he didn't give them full rest. So the conclusion is that there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's a rest for us in Jesus. And how do you get that rest? By believing, as verse 3 says. We have believed enter that rest. And our call then is verse 11, to be diligent to enter that rest. It's a call of the book of Hebrews. A diligent pursuit of Jesus. A pursuit of the rest that He gives. A rest from our works. An assurance that what Jesus accomplished on the cross is good enough for us. And then from there, He starts to delve into talking about high priests like He does in verses 14 through 16. In chapter 5, continue the theme, the The key though here is that Jesus is our high priest and He's the greatest of all high priests. In fact, if you look in verse 14, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, Son of God. Therefore, again, the call is what? To hold fast our confession. Right? We need to believe in Jesus. We need to embrace Him. We need to hold fast our confession. And Jesus is greater than any of the priests. Greater than Aaron, as it says. In chapter 5, verse 4, it mentions Him and... Chapter 5, verse 10 begins to mention Melchizedek. Jesus is the greatest of all high priests. That's why we we go to Jesus. Notice the author the book of Hebrews doesn't say to go to any other high priest. He says verse 16 of chapter 4, Let's draw near with confidence to the throne of grace where Jesus is. We may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We don't have need for another high priest because Jesus is the great high priest. And the danger then for the original hearers and readers here starting in chapter 5, verse 11 is that they would, would stop pursuing Jesus. If you look in here, he says that you're like children in your understanding. You need a milk and not meat. By this time, you ought, to, you ought to have meat. You ought to be pursuing Jesus to know enough about Him, to appreciate about Him, to love Him, to serve Him. You ought to be those who consume meat, but you're still an infant. You're still consuming milk. It calls them to maturity and the danger is that they would just stay in the elementary teaching about the Christ. Chapter 6, verse 1. He says, let's leave the elementary teaching about the Christ and let us press on to maturity. There it is. That's where I get the phrase, Jesus is better, so press on. Let us press on to maturity. Let's believe in Him. Embrace Him. Come to Him. Cling to Him. And press on. So that, verse 6, verse 11... Here's the deal. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. There's, be diligent in your pursuit of God, dear people. Pursue Him so that you might receive, realize this full assurance of hope until the end. A, that's, a, that's a pursuit of life. You know, many people there are that start the Christian life. They hear the Word of Jesus... Pray some kind of prayer that some pastor told them to pray. Confess a faith in Jesus. Find a matter of joy in obedience. But as Jesus says in Matthew 13, 21, many people like that have no root, no, no firm foundation. They're only temporary is what Jesus says. Jesus said in Matthew 13, 21, when affliction or persecution arises because of the Word, immediately he falls away. It's not that people lose their salvation. They reveal that they're not good soil. Plants start bro- growing up, showing life, but it never gets to fruit, which is demonst- demonstrative of Christians and believers. And the issue is not losing salvation. The issue is that the faith there is not not genuine saving faith. It's a false faith, be- faith, because persevering faith is a saving faith. And that's what the writer of the Hebrews is calling it. He's calling it faith that perseveres, that endures. We'll see that in a little bit. By the time we get to chapter 7, we're... See, a treatise on how Jesus was a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's a complicated chapter. But, you remember Melchizedek went to Abraham and he received tithes from Abraham and he blessed him. Both those things indicate that he was better because he received tithes from Abraham and he's the one that blessed him. In fact, it says in chapter 7, verse 7, but without any dispute, it's the lesser who's blessed by the greater Abraham the lesser was blessed by Melchizedek the greater. And also, it says here in one of these verses that, uh, yeah, verse 9. Through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, paid tithes. Because Abraham, Levi's father, or father, father, great-grandfather, whatever it was, he paid tithes, therefore Levi, even though he was the one who received tithes, he actually paid tithes to Melchizedek. Shows that Melchizedek is better. Christ is a priesthood. Or the order of Melchizedek, he is a better priest than all Levitical systems. In fact, even the mention of Melchizedek, as verse 11 explains, shows that the Levitical priesthood was only temporary at best. It says this in verse 11. Now, if perfection was through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law, if perfection was there, he said, what further need was there for another priest to arise according to the likeness of Melchizedek and not to be designated according to the order of Aaron? See what he's saying? He's saying that if, if 400 years before the law came, if a, if, a, if a priest came along that was better than Abraham and his priesthood would be forever, like Psalm 110 verse 4, where it says to Melchizedek, you are a priest forever to the Messiah. You're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. If there's a, a forever priesthood established first, and there's another priesthood established second, that second priesthood is certainly not the, not the one that was the best, rather it's the first one. It's the one of the Melchizedekian priesthood. It makes Jesus a different priest. A different, he's not a Levitical priest. He's a Melchizedekian priest, which makes Him better. And the Levitical priesthood was just filling the gap, teaching us about what a priest is. But Jesus was better. And and one of the implications of the better priesthood was that He has a better covenant. Look what it says in verse 12 of chapter 7. When the priesthood is changed, of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. You change the priesthood, right? Jesus comes, the law is changed. And with a different priest comes a better covenant as well. Chapter 7, verse 22. So much the more also Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. There's Jesus now, not only is a better priest, but he's also a better priest ruling and reigning over a better covenant. And particularly he's talking there about the new covenant, which prophesied in Jeremiah. And chapter 8 spends the whole chapter talking about how the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant was. In chapter 8, verse 6, we see a nice summary, but now Jesus has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he's also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. And the better promises are the promises of Jeremiah 31. That God's law won't be just an external thing, it'll be very much an internal thing. It's the new covenant. And it says in verse 13, when he said a new covenant, as Jeremiah did, he's made the first obsolete but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. The Old Covenant with rituals and sacrifices and priests and festivals and laws and regulations became obsolete, according to verse 13. There's no reason to follow the Old Covenant. The priesthood of Jesus is better. The promises of Jesus are better. Covenant is better. And also the sacrifice is better. That's all of chapter 9 through 10. It speaks about how the sacrifice of Jesus is even better. Look says in 9, 13. If the blood of bulls and ghosts in the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh. In other words, there was some kind of cleansing that took place for the Old Testament sacrifices. There was a cleansing of the flesh, it, it, it says here. If you read through Leviticus, it speaks about even atonement being made. There is a, a cleansing and there is a covering of, that takes place. There is a washing. But it's only skin deep. If it works for the cleansing of the flesh, verse 14, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. How much more is the blood of Christ who is perfect, going to cleanse your conscience deep within to serve the living God? That just speaks about the the primacy and how the sacrifice of Jesus is better than the covenant. In fact, you even see that in chapter 10, verse 1 about just the repeated nature of things. The law since there's only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very former things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw here. The, the animal sacrifices could never make perfect. Never could. Because, verse 4, chapter 10 says, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But do you realize this? With the sacrifice of Jesus, you can be made perfect. Perfect. In the sacrifice of Jesus. Look at, Verse 14. Chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, He has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. He makes us perfect. Jesus does. The sacrifice of Jesus never needs to be repeated. The first time and only time was just fine enough for Christ. Just fine enough for us. And so I I say, at the end of this, I say, church family, do you realize what you have in Jesus? Jesus you realize what you have? He's the best that God can offer you. Offering Himself. There's nothing better than God Himself. He is the best priest who offered you the best sacrifice and He's given you the best covenant. I will be their God and they should be My people. I'll put My laws in their hearts. They'll want to obey Me. I say, church family, don't ever turn from him. Don't ever turn from Jesus. Some of the original hearers, though, were turning from Jesus. That's why the reason for the whole warnings in the book and the most severe so far comes the fourth warning, which starts in chapter 10, verse 26. He says this If we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. I think what that means is a, just a, a willful neglect of Jesus. Going back to the Jews to sin willfully, to deny Jesus, they're no longer sacrificed for, for you. That's a big sin here. People turn it away. Maybe the case that, that prolonged continued sin it certainly may. But rather than a sacrifice, you get, verse 27, a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. I mean, these are some of the most terrifying verses in all the Bible. That it says to neglect the sacrifice of Christ, to go on willfully engaging in something else rather than trusting in Jesus and Him alone. brings upon a fury of a fire. And then 28 and 29 compares it. it says, Anyone who says I love Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will receive who has trampled underfoot the Son of God has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? Moses is one thing, but we got someone better than Moses. And so you trample under the blood of his covenant. If Moses was death without mercy, two or three witnesses, how much severer punishment do you think it's going to take to trample underfoot the blood of God? The blood of Jesus. And it says in verse 31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. The greatest need of the original hearers was to believe and trust and endure in their faith, never setting Jesus aside, never neglecting His sacrifice. And you see that coming in verse 35. Well, he, let's just pick up. We're slowing down here as so we come to verse 11. Because there's... A, a nice transition between chapter 10 and chapter 11. The chapter break is a sad one, bad one. But it says in verse 32, he says, Listen though, though I speak this warning, let me give you this encouragement. Remember the former days when after you were enlightened, the sufferings that you endured. Partly, verse 33, by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations. Right, they're persecuted on the behalf of the Word, persecuted for believing in Jesus, ridiculed by the family, ridiculed by friends, right, cut off financially perhaps. And partly by becoming shares of those who were so treated, right? some people were like that, and they became shares of them, and they participated in that as well. And then here's a tremendous fruit of their life. You showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, and then you have for yourselves, a better possession and a lasting one. Here were people who were having their, 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 their properties confiscated, maybe by, by family members, changing their will, maybe. Maybe by government officials coming in because there was persecution in the early church. But these people were happy in it because they had a faith in Christ which was beyond this world. They lived an extra-worldly life. Therefore, he says, verse 35, you've been doing well, right? You've been continuing on, but you need to continue to go on. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. Don't, don't throw it away. You've got this confidence in Jesus and you're tempted to maybe go back to the Jewish ways. Don't. Stay true. Because you've got a reward ahead of you. For you have need, verse 36 says, of endurance. here's faith. It's enduring faith. So that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Because it's faith that endures until the end. he who endures to the end, you will be saved. Because genuine faith is enduring faith. It's really the reality of this, but you, you need to continue to endure. Continue to trust in Jesus. And then at that day, there's something there. Verse 34 says, You've got uh, something better for yourselves than just mere earthly treasures. Verse 35 says, You've got this great reward looking out of you. Verse 36 says, You may receive what was promised. The promise doesn't come in this life, the promise comes in life to come. It's where the reward comes. And verse 37 begins a transition. Quoting from the Old Testament, Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. God's coming to give the reward. For yet in a very little while He was coming will come will not delay. My righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, that is, if He doesn't endure on, my soul has no pleasure in Him. It's the importance there of living by faith and not shrinking back, continuing on, pressing on, Right? Jesus is better, so let's press on. Let's keep going in these things. But we are not, verse 39 says, those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And there you see, that's who we are, the writer of the Hebrews says. He says, yeah, there are people who shrink back, but, but not us, we don't. There's just confidence in them. We are those who continue on. We don't shrink back. But we have faith the preserving of the soul. We continue on. We, we press on. And then that's why he starts talking about faith. Because it flows just rightly from, from chapter 10 to chapter 11. I got my Bible. I got a big axe through chapter 11 because it's a bad chapter break. It's really unfortunate. But he begins here. He does change it a little bit because he's going to talk about faith. He describes faith in verse 11, verse 1. So we've seen the need for faith, chapters 1 through 10. And now we see the description of faith. Here's the description of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Now, I'm careful with my words here. I could easily have said that that verse 1 is the definition of faith. In some ways, that's what we have here, because it says faith is. It looks to me a lot like a beginning of a definition. But when you really look at it, it's more of a description than a definition because it just describes what faith is, is like. A, a definition of faith might go something like this, like the Hatterberg Catechism says. What is saving faith? Answer number 21. True faith, created in me by the Holy Spirit through the Gospel, is not only a knowledge and a conviction that everything that God reveals in His Word is true, but also deep-rooted assurance that not only others but I too have been had my sins forgiven and been made right with God have been granted salvation and these are the gifts of sure grace earned for us by Christ. That's like a definition. Exhaustive. And boy, there's, there's lots in that definition that we could think about. How God creates the faith in us. How the faith is the veracity of God's Word and how it's in finally, fully in the sacrifice of Christ. We've spent a long time thinking about definitions of faith. Um, but, think best to do is just to take what the author has he's got this description of faith so let's rather than getting all into faith what it is by definition let's look at it for what it is by description That's what the writer of hebrews does it's good enough for us he says this two parallel statements chapter 11 verse 1 faith is statement number one the assurance of things hoped for statement number two the conviction of things not yet seen Those are are two statements there parallel, like Hebrew parallelism, if you're any familiar with that in the Old Testament. Psalms, Proverbs, Hebrew parallelism is not based upon Hebrew poetry is not based upon rhyme and meter, it's based upon parallel ideas. And these lines are exactly the same. Words correspond. Assurance and conviction, those two are similar words. Hoped for and not seen, those are similar ideas. Faith involves this assurance, this conviction of things that can't fully be seen or grasped. It's the belief that what's hoped for or not seen will come to pass, or what, what's not clearly seen is, is still believed and hoped to be genuine and real. That is what faith is. But it's more than just a belief in those things. It's a, it's a confident assurance that these unseen things are true. And that's right here. We see this isn't a full definition of meaning of faith because you can have faith in what you see. Think about Thomas. Doubt, Thomas was doubting the resurrection of Christ because he hadn't seen Jesus risen from the dead with his own eyes. He said, unless I see in his hands the imprint of his nails and put my finger in the place of his nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Unless I see, I will not believe. And later upon seeing the imprint of his nails and feeling the wound in his side, Thomas believed. Now, we wouldn't say, oh, Thomas, he didn't really have faith, because faith is the things hoped for, the things not seen. You get what I'm saying here? Is that we can have a faith in things we see, but this describes faith, though, just in general. It's something that we have a, a belief in of things we didn't see. And Thomas certainly. Believed much that wasn't physical, tangible, and seeable. I mean, he believed that his sins were forgiven. He believed that Jesus would come again. He believed that he would spend eternity with Him in heaven. And and uh, that's why Thomas gave his life, as church tradition has it in India. Died as a martyr there, bringing the Gospel to those in India. So Thomas had very much of this unseen faith, but he got to see and therefore believe but the element that, that verse 1 is getting at here in faith is this, this belief of something that you can't, um, you can't exactly prove. You can't, can't have it all there, all wrapped up. Rather, it's just so convinced in your mind that you believe it strongly and you have it. And there are reasons for that faith, certainly. But still, it is something hoped for. It's a little bit like like Paul says in Romans 8.24, that hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. And so likewise here, the idea of faith coming across this whole passage is that faith that is seen is not faith. For who believes in what he already sees is it's kind of the idea here we're talking about with faith. And that's to be sure we, we believe what we see. But the thrust of Hebrews 11.1 1 is, isn't concerned about that element of faith. It's more talking about the element of faith that hopes it's things, places its things on things not seen and I do think that there is a thrust here with particular danger to the Jewish people going back to the things that are seen in the temple service. And the priest, they can see all those things, but say, no, we've got our faith in an unseen Messiah who was here for us for a while, we touched him, but now he's gone. And many of the people I think who received this never maybe saw Jesus in the flesh. They're just like us. It's like Jesus said to Thomas, because you see you believed, blessed are those who do not see and yet have believed. It's us. Jesus says we're blessed because haven't seen, we believe. And this believing, as it says here, is is sure. It's firm. It says that assurance and conviction are the words used here. Faith will bank its life upon those things as though they were certain and real. In fact, that's even how the... Uh, Uh, The New King James, and the King James gets at it in their translations. They say, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Uh, The idea there is more of a a tangible way, uh, a really grasping of what's real and tangible. There's substance to it. There's evidence for it. But the assurance of conviction is so real and so true that you, you have it, you believe it, you grasp it, and you live according to it. That's what faith is. And we see that going on in all of chapter 11. We see people seeing this faith in God and then seeing them act accordingly. Faith is a confidence expressed like Jim Elliot in that famous statement. Remember what he said? He's no fool to give up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose, right? And he had a faith in that and he lived upon that nineteen fifty six martyred on a beach in Ecuador because he was giving what he couldn't keep to gain what he can't lose. And that's faith in action. That's that's seeing beyond. What's touchy feel what's now. Faith is the life of William Carey. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Carey had a conviction about this. He had great expectations. He founded the Baptist Missionary Society, sailed off to India in 1792, giving his life to reach the people of India with the gospel, printed booklets, Bibles, literature, translations. And the legacy he left was amazing. He he expected great things from God. He attempted great things from God, and God did great things through him. That, but but that was when he left for India. That was all all unseen. It was seen in his mind. It was the assurance and conviction. He said God, You are a great God. I'm going to expect great things for, from you. And now I'm going to attempt these great things for you. Faith is like George Mueller, the man of prayer. The story is often told about him. I've heard it on a couple of occasions. Maybe you have as well. He was taking a ship to Canada. The captain of the ship told this story from first-person perspective. He said, we had George Mueller of Bristol on board. I'd been on the bridge for 24 hours and never left it. And George Mueller came to me and said, Captain, I've come to tell you I must be in Quebec on Saturday afternoon. It's impossible, I said. Very well then, if your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way. I've never broken an engagement in 57 years. Um, let us know, go down into the chart room and pray. I looked at that man of God and thought to myself, what a lunatic asylum can that man come from? For I've never heard of such a thing. Mr. Mueller, I said, do you not know how dense this fog is? No, he replied. My eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life. And so George Mueller, as the captain said, knelt down and prayed one of the most simple prayers he'd ever heard. When he finished, the captain said, I was going to pray, but he put his hand on my shoulder and told me not to pray. As you do not believe, he will not answer. As I believe, there is no need whatsoever for you to pray about it. I love that. I looked at him and George Mueller said, Captain, I've known my Lord for 57 years. There's never been a single day where I failed to get an audience with a king. Get up, Captain. Open the door. You'll find the fog is gone. I got up. And the fog indeed was gone. And on that Saturday afternoon, George Mueller kept his promise engagement. Now, I don't know if that story is exactly true or not. I know it's very consistent with the life of George Mueller. No contradiction there. If you've ever read his Answers to Prayer, big small biography for kids to read. I know some of you kids have read it. Um, but also there's a bigger one. Just just the way that God provides. He provides just by praying and trusting. And, and there was faith. George Mueller was a man of faith. He believed and trusted God for the things he couldn't see. He couldn't see the fog was going to be lifted. But he was assured. He was convicted, convinced of that. And God honored that. And here are three men who have modeled faith. Jim Elliott, William Carey, George Mueller... And that's what Hebrews 11 does. It tells us stories of the men of old who believed in God. And it's going to be encouraging for us, as so we have seen chapters one through 11, the need for faith. and we see verse one, the description of faith. And we're going to see in verse two the examples of faith. Look at verse two, it says this: "For by it the men of old gained approval." It's really it's a summary of the whole chapter. The summary verse of all of chapter 11 and in Hebrews 11 we have the men of old we have the Old Testament saints if you will about a dozen of them Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah and Moses Moses' parents you might count them you might not um, all of Israel have passed through the Red Sea you have Rahab the harlot Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and, and others. Look at verse 32. There's, there's Gideon, Eric, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. There's all these others along with that. And then it's got all the deeds that they, that they did. Tremendous deeds that they did. They conquered kingdoms in verse 33. Verse 34, they quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. The end of verse 33, shut the mouths of lions, probably talking about Daniel. And, and they didn't have it easy either. They were stone. They were sawn into. Verse 37. It's probably talking about Isaiah the prophet. That's what tradition says. They're put to death. They went about sheepskins and goatskins just being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated. Um, all these people, the Old Testament, walked by faith. Now, all of them, as it says here in verse 2, they gained approval by their faith. They obtained approval by the faith. In fact, even you can look through here, chapter 11, and see how many times it says, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. Verse 4, it's by faith, Abel. By 5, it's by faith, Enoch. By 7, it's by faith, Noah. By 8, by faith, Abraham. By 9, it's by faith, Abraham. We even have Sarah thrown in the mix. 20, Isaac, by faith Isaac. 21, by faith Jacob. Verse 22, by faith Joseph. 23, by faith Moses. Was hit by his parents? 24, by faith Moses. Moses, again, by faith, by faith, by faith, did all these other things. Rahab, by faith, did these things. And, And here they gained approval by the faith because when God looks at us, He's not looking for us to do great things for then God to give a thumbs up towards us. Rather, He's looking for those who believe in Him and He'll get approval from us. Now, the encouraging thing here is when we go through these people is that they're not like totally righteous people. All right? I mean, you can go through almost every single one of these guys and we know of some sin that they had. For instance, Noah was a, a drunkard. We you know that Abraham lied. We know that Sarah laughed at God. We know that Jacob was a deceiver. We know that Moses was a murderer. And yet, they gained approval from God. Why? Because they believed. Because in God's economy, it's not, it's not the works that make us right before God. And, and that was a temptation for these people to go back into the Jewish system to work. To work hard. Rather, say, no, no, it's by faith. And another encouraging thing is that um, your faith doesn't need to be big. It just needs to be small. Matthew 17, verse 20, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say this mountain be moved and you'll be cast into the sea. It's an encouraging thing, I think, from Matthew, from Hebrews chapter 11 as well. But, but these men gained approval. See that in verse 2? It says also in verse 39 that they gained approval through their faith. How to gain approval. It's how to approach God. Here's what I want to do. I wanna I wanna close this session. I wanna I wanna kinda of bring this to an end uh, and by by just reading um, all of Hebrews eleven. In fact, well, I just want to recite it for you. I want you just to think about it. Um, and just I've been thinking about these people by faith, by faith on my mind. They they've just been there. And then we're gonna go into Hebrews twelve and the transition nicely to the Lord's Supper because there's some things about Jesus it says about faith, okay? So it says in chapter 10, verse 39, we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the Word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. By faith Abel offered to God a better sacrifice than Cain through which he obtained the testimony that he was righteous, God testifying about his gifts. And though he's dead, through faith, though he's dead, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch walked with God, and he was taken up. He was not found, because God took him up. For he obtained the the witness, before his being taken up, that he was pleasing to God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of those who seek him. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence, prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise, in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise." For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. By faith, even Sarah herself received the ability to conceive, even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born, even of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and in, as innumerable as the sands of the seashore. All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen him, having welcomed them from a distance, having confessed there were strangers and exiles on the earth. For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And Indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return, but as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he would receive the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it said, In Isaac your descendant shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received them back as a type. By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and he saw even regarding things to come. <clears throat> By faith Jacob, as he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. By faith Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. There's forward thinking there. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king for he endured as seeing him was unseen. By faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea so they're passing through dry ground and the Egyptians they attempted it were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been circled for seven days. By faith Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty and more, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release so that they might obtain a better resurrection. Others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn into, They were tempted. They were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom this world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. It's amazing. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us so apart from us, they would not be made perfect. Therefore, another bad chapter mark, 12 verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race that set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising his shame, and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. As it says in verse 3, For consider Him who has endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And we'll stop there. We, we can go on, but we're going to stop there. I hope you feel just the weight of all these people, just the the things they've done, and they did it all all by faith in Jesus Christ. And 12 is really the culmination. Because we have all these witnesses surrounding us, all these Old Testament saints who have walked with God. Let us lay aside the sin. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus. And He's the author of faith. He's the author of our faith. He's the one that gives us our faith. Who... Here's the Gospel. For a joy set before Him, having a faith before Him, He continued, He kept in His faith by enduring the cross, despising the shame of hanging naked on a tree, and then He was highly exalted, set down at the right hand of the throne of God. And this is our call this morning, verse 3. Consider Him, consider Jesus, who endured such hostility by sinners against Himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. To call to us as we think about the great men of old who lived by faith, to consider Jesus who endured great hostility, so we might not lose heart as well. And that, you know, in the Lord's Supper, that that really takes place. We think about the Lord's Supper. It's, it's the picture we have. God commanded us to celebrate remembering his death, remembering the death of Christ. And when he was there at the Last Supper, he took the bread and the wine that were there, and he said, this is my body, this is my bread. It's just, just a picture of his death. I'm a, my body is going to be broken and poured out, pierced. My, bread is, my, 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 my flesh is going to bleed like the, the covenant of this cup. I'm going to face hostility by people. I'm going to be abandoned by all you disciples. I'm going to be mocked and scourged by the people and the elders. I'm going to be beaten, going to be flogged, going to be crucified, dead and buried. And he says, "But the third day I'm going to rise again." As he said there about that last meal, eating that thing, he said, "Do this in remembrance of me." And that's what we're doing today. We're remembering Jesus and particularly remembering his cross and particularly remembering how he faced hostility by sinners against himself. The encouraging thing comes this, is that we've not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. He did. And so, likewise, we ought to be willing to do so as well, to be a martyr, to trust in Christ, even as He has poured out His life for us.